I want to begin the message this morning to uh, share a story with you. It's a story of uh, an individual several years ago who came to faith as a Christian, as an adult, uh, living in North Carolina. It's a story I learned uh, and heard him tell just recently. And the story was that, like increasing numbers of people, he grew up in a family that didn't go to church, uh, that was kind of antagonistic about it, uh, in, a, in a just sort of a quiet sense, just more dismissive about it. And that's how he grew up, and that was his worldview about it. And uh, he got married uh, after college. Uh, he and his wife had very successful careers. He had, uh, they had three children. I definitely don't want to say he had three children. She had three children. He was probably present when they were born. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. But so she had three children. They had three children. He did not have three children. She had three children. And, um, and, um, and life was good. Now, what happened was, is that he, uh, as his career was very successful, he was offered a job at a startup company with some friends. They came to him and said, we think you'd be a huge asset to this uh, new organization. And he really wanted to do it. He believed in the product. He believed that uh, he was ready for change in his career. But the thing that was holding him back was that uh, the benefits for their family came through his job. Now, his wife, through her job, had an option of benefits, but they just weren't quite as good uh, for their family as at his job. But they talked about it, and they said, you know, we think that this company is going to be successful, so let's move to, uh, to her benefits for a little while, make the jump to this new startup company, and then we think it's going to be successful, and then hopefully we can move back to a better benefits package with you when the company's at that point. So that's what they did. And things were going great. Until three months in to uh, his work there, he started feeling bad. And went to the doctor and was diagnosed with cancer. Now, they had benefits, again, through her work, but they weren't as robust. And as treatment for cancer went forward, they started going further and further and further into debt. His family learned about this. They tried to help. Friends in the community tried to help. But the debt was something that they didn't know how they were going to be able to solve. And then one day he had a phone call. Phone call was from a local pastor of a tiny little church in North Carolina. This person uh, had never met before and said, hey, you know, a friend of yours goes to our church, heard about the story, and we have something we'd like to propose as an idea. We'd like to put on a play and sell tickets to the community. Now, that sounds like somewhat of an interesting thing, but this church had a tradition of that. Two of their members had actually been uh, actors in New York City when their younger years. They had acted on Broadway, and there was just sort of this DNA that they kind of did uh, a, a play many years at the church. The youth would get involved. All the actors were just volunteers from the church. It was something they did. And they said, what if we did this, and we would sell tickets, which normally we don't do, and all of the, the proceeds would go to your family? And the guy said, well, I, I don't go to church there. And they said, that's okay. He said, I don't want to go to church there. He said, that's okay. Uh, you know, we, we just, we, could we do this? He said, sure. So for a number of months, the church worked. The youth made the set, the, the kind of props. They, uh, everyone in the church kind of got into it. And they did a, a performance on Friday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday night. They sold tickets. Everything sold out. They had a silent auction that was involved in it. And at the end of the weekend, they raised almost $150,000 all of which went to debt, medical debt relief for this family, for this individual. Now, that evening, after the Sunday night, the final performance, uh, the person who had cancer just said, I'd just love to say thank you to the actors, to the volunteers, to the two people that directed it. Just, I can't express gratitude, but I'd just like to say thanks. 
So after the church had cleared out, uh, that small group of, of volunteers who had done so much were there, and, and the individual said two things. He said, number one, what my family and I have been through, I would not wish on my worst enemy. However, I wish every single one of you knew what I feel right now. To have other people come along to take care of a debt that seemed to us to be insurmountable. I wish every single one of you knew what this feeling was like. As people started to clear out, the pastor walked up to him and said, hey, I want you to know that every single one of us here does know what that feeling is like. Our faith teaches us that every single one of us has a debt that we cannot repay. And that another has come along to free us from it. And you're right. It's the most amazing feeling in the world. And that started this individual on a journey of asking questions about what Christian faith truly is about. I'd like you to keep that story in your mind today. I'd like it to maybe be a framework for you as we think about uh, this series and moving forward as a church. As we said, we're starting a new series entitled Unlocking Joy, which is also the um, title of this campaign that we're in. And we're going to be talking in our messages a little bit about why we're asking you to be a part of this, why we're asking you to give. Not from a strategic, not, it's not, not about money, not, but it's a huge thing to ask a community to give on top of your regular giving for something. And we want to share a little bit with you about why. Why is this so important to Austin, to beyond each of us? And the, the scripture that's going to frame it for each of these three weeks is from the first chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And today, we're just going to read the first two verses. That's all. First two verses of Philippians 1. And um, I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we journey here today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in your name. Amen. So again, two verses, and in these two verses, we're just going to look at one word in the first verse. And the one word that we're going to talk about today is the word that we translate in English as saints. Paul writes to all the saints in Philippi. And I want us to take a second to understand what we mean and what he means by that word, because this word is hugely significant to everything that we're about. Now, in many parts of our Christian family, the word saints is sort of treated as people who are spiritual superheroes, people whose resume is better. I don't want to speak... I don't want to speak about you, but they're better than my resume, right? Uh, and they might be better than your resume. People that we vote on, that it's demonstrated, they're kind of superhuman Christians, and they become saints of the church. Uh, that's even how we think about it culturally, that, that understanding. I hear people say, again, not religious people who will say, oh, that person is such a saint. Well, what do they mean by that? What they mean is that's a better than average person, right? They're not just a normal person. Their resume of kindness or generosity or love or patience or giving, it's better than other folks, right? 
We say that here. I've heard people in this church say things like, oh, she is one of the true saints of the church. Well, what they mean by that is not like they're just an average person here at Covenant, right? They're saying this person's resume is better than normal, better than the rest of us, better than yours, Thomas. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably right. Is that what Paul means, though? Is Paul writing to some insider club in the church in Philippi of the really special, serious Christians? The word saint that we translate from Greek is hagios. And hagios literally means anybody who is consecrated by God, set apart by God. But the way our faith teaches that is not that your resume makes you good enough to be set apart, but biblically what it means to be a saint is you are one who is in the faith, that grace is a part of your life, that Jesus is someone that you have called into your life. Because what we believe in our faith is that when we become Christians, um, we are washed clean, consecrated, we are um, credited with the righteousness of Jesus. That in faith, what we believe is that when God looks at you, he sees the beauty and righteousness of his own son. That is the gift of faith. And so what Paul writes to the saints in Philippi, he's writing to everybody there. He's saying, all of you are saints. All of you are consecrated. All of you are forgiven. Not by what you do, but because what God has declared about you in faith. You see that? And the people of Philippi might be like us. They'd be like, are you talking about even Ben? And they're like, yes, I'm talking about Ben. I was like, even Susan? Like, yeah, do you know what she said yesterday? Yes, but it doesn't matter. Their resume isn't what makes them saints. It's their faith that makes them saints. It's, it's their forgiven nature that makes them saints. It's an amazing message. I want to take a second to kind of look at the miracle of what this word and what this message is, because it's so important to everything we're about. What makes this so unique? Why is it so important? And for me at least, the writings of Tim Keller have been hugely like a light bulb moment in my life uh, of kind of why this is so central to who we are, why this word we need to focus on so much. Tim Keller is the author, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he writes about this, and, and I'm gonna spend the next few minutes kind of summarizing some of his stuff. So he's a lot smarter than I am, so this might be a little more dense than my sermons are, but um, just go with me for a second, okay? Tim Keller says to understand the importance of a word like saints, forgiveness, washed clean, consecrated, justified. He says that you need to understand and appreciate God's righteous anger against sin. Against sin. Against injustice in this world. Now I know I know several of us are getting very uncomfortable right now, right? I know that studies show that we don't like angry Jesus. We don't like judging Jesus. We like affirming Jesus. We like loving Jesus. We like eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus in the manger. <laughs> we love that Jesus that just sort of makes us feel better. But the Jesus that overturns tables in the temple, like, oh, it feels a little judgmental to me. And that's kind of what the church is known by. Oh, like, I love the affirming Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus who just... It's like my spiritual teddy bear. Just when I'm having a downtime, just go to cuddle, makes me feel better. You know, it's like, great. That's the Jesus we more are drawn to. But Tim Keller says that this is also the kind of faith that's alive in the world right now and a lot of the kind of spiritual but not religious 
places. I believe that the universe is a place of love. There's just like love is what we're supposed to do. There's kind of this force of love that exists and we're just supposed to love each other and you know, and then if we could just love each other more, the world would be a better place and we'd all just kind of, kind of be in this sort of this spirit of love kind of thing. But Tim Keller says that among other problems that if you actually stop and think about it, no matter what you believe, that that is a faith that actually does not take pain and evil seriously. It's a faith that sounds good in the moment, but it falls apart quite quickly. Why? Take an extreme example. Let's take what's taking place in, the UK, in, in Ukraine right now. Understandings of war crimes that are taking place that are awful. Let's take a place like Iran, where women, and men as well, are protesting for equal rights. And there have been stories of atrocities that have come out of there. Keller wants us to think about, is our response to that as people of faith to go, God just loves everybody. God just wants everybody to get along. God, you know, I know it's been hard, but I'm not really here to judge. You know, I don't kind of want to like, get into, right? So what I need you to do is I just need you to take that hurt and I need you to bury it inside so that we can all just get along. Because that's what I'm here to, I, I don't want I don't, I don't to make anyone feel bad. Is that, is, that the, is that the force that we believe is actually loving? Keller says that that's not a force of love. Because what it does, and listen to this, it re-victimizes victims. Because it tells them their pain doesn't actually matter. It says you have suffered this atrocity, and what God wants you to do is just bury it inside and smile and get along so that we can all have love. It's saying to their family members who have experienced that, that's God's response to your devastation. Keller says, is that truly a God that's worth worshiping? And it's not just about what takes place in, a, in an extreme example like that. It takes place in our life. It takes place in your life. You have pain. I have pain. You have been hurt. I have been hurt. You have been betrayed in your life. I have been betrayed in my life. You have been stabbed in the back. I've been stabbed in the back. You've been gossiped about. I've been gossiped about. You've been spoken about and left out, and so have I. And there are scars that are left in that, aren't there? There is pain that is a part of our story. And Keller says that the gospel is not that you just need to kind of smile and move forward. If you're a parent of a child and your child is being awfully bullied, a loving parent doesn't look at the child and go, just bury that inside and smile. No, what a loving parent does is like, we're going to take care of this. We're going to make this right. That's what justice is. Keller says that we worship a God who says that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That God looks at the pain in this world and says, we are going to make this right. We are going to hold accountable those where there has been harm and pain. And he says that when we understand that, that our God's not some toothless God going, just love everybody. God's going, no, we're going to make this right. That there are two things that we should immediately feel. Stay with me here. We're, we're almost at the end of Keller. He's so good, but it's, I know it's a lot. But he says there's two things. The first thing we should all feel is unbelievable gratitude and worth. That God looks at our scars and says, I see that. I care about that. I'm not asking you to just smile and move through it like it didn't matter, like it didn't hurt. You matter too much to me for that. As we sing about at Christmas, our souls should know their worth. Should make you feel the importance of who God declares you to be as an image bearer of God. 
But he says, secondly, there's a second thought that's going to come into your head. And these are not Tim Keller's words. I'm now dumbing it down to Thomas's level. But the second thing that should come into your head is, uh-oh. It's a Greek word from the Old Testament. Oh, in the New Testament. <laughs> it's a very theological word. Uh-oh. Because, let's see, not only have I been hurt, but I have also hurt people. And God's not going to sweep that under the carpet. I have not just been talked about, but I have talked about people. I've not only been betrayed, but I've probably been a part of betraying people. I not only have been a part of seeing narcissists work, but I've seen self-centeredness in my own life that's affected people. Not only have other folks not been generous the way they're called to, there's been times I've just wanted what I want and kept it, and that that has had ripple effects to it. And so what we're saying is God's not going to just bury that hurt that not just I've experienced, but that I've caused and that leaves you with a very uncomfortable question, doesn't it? So if God's going to have an accountability for this, because I don't believe in the tooth fairy, God just loves everybody and everybody's going to be happy, there's accountability, because that's what real love looks like. So how good do I need to be? Like The, the most anxiety-riddled question in spirituality is like, so how good is good enough? I'm a really good person. I'm not like a mass murderer or anything. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, I feel really, I feel pretty good about this. Because, you know, I think overall I've been like a really good person and stuff. It's like, great. So taking into account everything in your life, does it fill you with peace to say that God is going to be a God of accountability for you to be like, oh, I feel really confident standing before the throne of judgment one day, looking at my ledger. I, you know, really, I'm not, you know, I'm not like Hitler or something. It's like, oh, good. So you're, you're saying is God grades on a curve. Yeah, I think God grades on a curve. Really, have you, like, what evidence do you have for that? And what's the curve? Like, how good is good enough? How good do you need? Well, you know, I think pretty good. I don't know about you. That gives me no comfort at all. That is a system that if we don't believe in a toothless spirituality, then we've got to have a rules of performance, of righteousness, of rules, of regulation, of guilt and shame. And I'm telling you, if you believe sainthood is determined by your resume, that is a hard burden to live your life under. I got to be good enough. How good is good enough? When I die, and I do believe in a God that there is accountability because the other God is not a God worth following, as nice as it feels in the moment, I am calling on the name of Jesus. I might be the only one here today, but I do not want to sit there and go, oh, you know, I'm kind of pretty good and people like me. I'm kind of not a mass murderer or anything like that. So, hey, we're pretty good, God, right? When I know that God looks at, sees my heart, sees my mind, sees the things I've done and left undone, when, when God says, let's have an accountability for this, like I am calling on the righteousness of Jesus to be credited to me. That is the only thing that would give me peace. I don't know about you. The gospel is not that we have a toothless God that just hopes everyone can be happy and shiny because it re-victimizes pain. 
And it is also not that there's a system then of accountability that we have to be good enough. God knows that we are people who have been harmed and who harm. And what God does is in the middle of that is send his son as an atoning sacrifice on the cross so that when we claim faith, the righteousness of Jesus, Paul is saying, is credited to us. And when people say in in the city of Austin about helping children in AISD with school lunch, it's like, oh, that's what a church should do. That's what, it's like, yeah, not because we see poor people and go, oh, well, they're going to become a project for us, but because extending the forgiveness of debt to people is the greatest gift we ourselves have received. We are simply trying to embody for other people the most glorious news that this world has ever heard. And so when someone stands before a congregation and says, I would not wish cancer in this situation on my worst enemy, but I wish every single one of you knew what it was like to have a debt that is forgiven by the love of somebody else, that we can stand with that pastor going, we know that feeling. Being a saint of the church is not about if you have the right resume. It's not about what you and I do. It's a celebration of what Jesus has done. And I want to say something as we close. And and I have thought about this, and this is a big statement, but I I want you to think about this. This is actually the only unique message that we as the church have to offer to the world. Pretty much everything else we do, if we went away, somebody else could do. But this idea of something that is stronger and more just than a toothless spirituality that actually falls apart at the first moment of pain, and something that is more than a religion of rules and righteousness and thou shalts and and, and anxiety to perform, nobody else has that message. Nobody else has that gospel. That's the one unique thing. If we give that up or don't stand on that, then literally people can go do the same stuff pretty much. They just don't have to wake up on Sunday morning, which is like a gift, right? That's what makes us who we are. And by God's grace, that is happening at Covenant. It has been happening for decades at this church, but we are in a unique season where that is taking place. Our church is growing, yes. It has had sustained growth in recent years. We last week, and we're gonna introduce some of you here today who are new members, had 40 new people join the church again. It's incredible, but here's what's really incredible at the the heart of that. In this class as well, the vast majority of them who joined are not coming from another church. They're not coming here because I like the youth program here better. I mean, some of you might be, and if you're here for that reason, we're really glad you're here. But I love our youth program. I think it's great. But the majority of people who are coming were not part of a church before. There's a difference in church swapping and kingdom growth. And we are making inroads into the majority Austin community. And they are hearing something that they've not heard somewhere else before. And it's changing something about their lives, about the true nature of the gospel, of what is good news, of how much God loves them. 
We are seeing historic levels in the history of this church and our children's ministry right now. They are spilling out. If you volunteer, have been up there, they are literally spilling into different parts of our campus. It's amazing what these youngest in our community are hearing about the gospel and about their souls having worth. Our youth ministry has rebounded from COVID. We have a group of confirmants joining at the next service at 11. One of them was baptized last week at the church picnic. And if you were there, you know there is very few things in the world more powerful than a 17-year-old high school junior saying, I don't want just sweet, cuddly Jesus who makes me feel better, but this is a person who gave his life for me and I want to be a part of what he is doing in the world. It is an amazing thing when people's soul know their worth in that way. And this is the heart of everything that this campaign is about because we are out of room. And I am not comfortable with the limitations of our campus currently as it is putting a ceiling on how many people can hear and experience this message. I'm not ready. I'm, that is not an acceptable answer as when we have the answer right across the patio that we can do something with. Not just for ourselves, and yes, it alleviates a short-term need, but for generations to come for this place to thrive by declaring to people there is an opportunity to be saints that can change your life as never before. We're not asking you to give in a if you build it, they will come kind of way. Well, if we do this, maybe people will start coming again. We have the opportunity before us to keep up with what God is already doing. And I hope you'll join us. Because there's nowhere else that proclaims the beauty of a message that says, we have a God who looks at you in love, who consecrates you, who fills you with worth, who declares you to be a saint this world and the world to come, not because of what you do, but because of what he has done. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would be with us, lead us, and guide us as your people, both today and in the days to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.